0: I'm going to invite you to the book of Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And uh, here's, here's my hope and prayer for us as we've had opportunity to sing music and worship to the Lord. As we open up the text of God's word, I pray our hearts continue in worship because Colossians uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, I feel like these portions of scripture, there is no more powerful text that concisely communicates the significance uh, of Jesus in theological terms For us to grasp as a church. These are the foundational points for for us as a body of believers and what it means to pursue Jesus. Which is why I really want to encourage our hearts to continue to worship as we look at this text. And I want to encourage you to open up to chapter 2 and follow along with this text together. Because uh, chapter 2, we're going to skim through this whole chapter today. I'm going to point out some very important parts of this chapter. There's going to be a lot of information. It's like going to be opening up the fire hose this morning. And you're going to drink deep. okay? As much as you can gather, gather as we're going along, if there's anything I say that I don't dive deeply enough into or something you want to check later, make a note for yourself, study it beyond this, ask me. We have those uh, opportunities available for you. We always want to encourage us to continue to grow. God tells us to love him with all of our mind. And so we want to encourage questions and growth in the Lord. If there's something that you're unfamiliar with, please ask. We want to always encourage that. Colossians chapter 2 for us, just so you know, as this text breakdowns, uh, Paul Paul is now going to defend the statement that he made in chapter 1. Chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and on, we looked at this last week, is a creedal statement, a hymn of the early church that they would sing acknowledging the significance of who Jesus is. It is what they stood for. And so this statement uh, is jam-packed, full of understanding the significance of Christ and our relationship to him and everything. everything. Everything that Jesus is for us. Religion has the tendency to say, or religion will. Uh, undermine the authority of who Christ is. It has this thought with it, that Jesus isn't enough, and so we need to make up the difference, and so we invent religion to sort of make up where, where Jesus falls short. But what we find in the book of Colossians chapter 1 is the Bible communicates to us, Jesus is enough, and Paul sets out the creed. This, this word for creed literally means, it's a Latin word for I believe. And so this statement of I believe starts in verse 13 of chapter 1, and it carries on the chapter 2 two. Now in in chapter two, he makes a defense for why he believes what he believes or why Christians should believe what they believe about Jesus. A very interesting text for us this morning. The pinnacle of it we're going to see in verse eight as Paul lays out before and after what is significant as it relates to our faith in Jesus. For me, coming to Christ, Impacted my life in such a way there was a radical transformation in who I was before Jesus and who I am now in Christ, not to say that I am perfect, but God has certainly redeemed my heart, transformed my life, and and gave me a new uh, perspective on the point of what life is about in him. And one of the things that happened very early on as I started to skeptically study Jesus and then I put my faith in Christ is I, I came to these types of books that made a defense of Jesus. And, and you know, to be quite frank, when I, when, before I became a believer, the thing that turned me off about Jesus were people that claimed to know Jesus. <laughs> and um, And so I sort of based Jesus off what I considered just foolishness and thought, you know, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And as I started to really... Research Jesus and, and and come to understand the biblical Jesus, I, I realized when it came to faith specifically in Christ there was a solid foundation in who Jesus was. And so I started to really gravitate towards apologetic books, um, books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, which we give a little booklet on him when, when you visit our church for the first time. It's called More Than a Carpenter. So if you got ripped off and didn't get that book, let me know. We'll make sure you get it, right? But, but um, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There was uh, a man by the name of Chuck Colston who, who was a part of Watergate who coincidentally enough, God used Watergate to bring him to Jesus because he realized that 12 most prominent men in American history couldn't keep a lie together for a couple of days. But the 12 disciples did it for their entire lives, only it wasn't a lie, which validated the truth uh, of of who Jesus was to them. And so Chuck Colston, in understanding that story and reading about the disciples, wrote a defense of Christianity. But when I came to know Jesus, there was this book coming out by a man named Lee Strobel who was a skeptic himself. His wife became a Christian. He was an investigative journalist. And so he went on this journey of investigating Christianity, wanting to really disprove it because he didn't want his wife to be a Christian. Ends up becoming a Christian. In his journey, he writes a book called The Case for Faith. And and when this book first came out, there was also an audio CD that came with it. I tried to find it this week. I couldn't find it. But he interviews a man named Charles Templeton. And, And Templeton, the interesting thing about him is in his younger years, into a young adulthood, he claimed to be a follower of Jesus, and then he walked away from, from the faith, and, and he became a prominent atheist, uh, broadcasting against Christianity, and, and, and uh, Lee Strobel had the opportunity to interview him. I believe he was living, living in Canada at the time. Lee Strobel had the opportunity to interview him. Later in his life, he was in his 80s, and this interview took place just a couple of years before his death, and he wasn't doing public interviews really anymore. He had, he had recently been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and so he, he kind of tucked away from public life, but Lee Strobel had this opportunity to interview him about why he walked away from the faith, what, what he thought about Christianity, and then he gets to this point in the interview where he asks him about Jesus. And when Lee Strobel gives us introduction to his question about Jesus to, to Charles Templeton... He said he was hesitant to do it because he wanted to prod further questions uh, to Templeton, but he knew Templeton's health was frail, and so he, he felt the need to press this interview further. And so he asks him about Jesus, knowing this could enter, end the interview. But here is Charles Templeton in his 80s, staring at, at his maker very, very soon in the future. He has Alzheimer's. He knows he's, he's getting to the end of his life. And this is what he says when, when Lee Struble asks him about Jesus. This is his remarks. And I, I've kind of cut this down. He goes much further into the beauty of who Christ is in this statement, but let me just read just an excerpt. He says, He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Just look at Jesus. There's no question that He had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, this is what Lee Struble said, that's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected to hear from him. And he said this, if I may put it this way, and his voice began to crack, I miss him. And with that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. The significance of who Christ is, is the foundation of what Christianity is. Chapter 2 of Colossians is the defense of that. Paul opens up this passage of scripture, and I'm going to break it to us in chunks. In, in chapter 2, in verses 1 to 3, he reveals to us the mystery, and this is what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who, are personally, who have not personally seen my face. So Paul, we said this in the beginning, when Paul wrote the book of Colossians, Paul didn't start this church. In fact, he started the church of Ephesus, and a man named Epaphras came from uh, the the city of Colossae, and and he had gone back to the city and shared the message that Paul had given him, and this church was born. And, And so Paul says, you know, I'm struggling for you here, and we looked at the reasoning why. It's because the significance of who Jesus is, the preeminence of Christ, the deity of Jesus is under attack within the church, and people are coming in, they're saying, really, I'm a Christian too, but your idea of Jesus isn't the right Jesus, let me present to you some other persuasive arguments of of who Jesus is really and how you should embrace him. And they're undermining the significance of Jesus. They're they're, they're tearing him down. And Paul is saying, I'm struggling for you here, that their their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like Paul's saying, look, this mystery, these people in the church that are trying to pretend like there's more to this or adding or taking away from Christ, listen, God's mystery, it's been revealed. Now, people like to cling to this word mystery in the New Testament, like there are these secret things of God that you, that you don't know. But here's, here's what I, w- I want you to know. When the Bible talks about the word mystery, almost immediately every time this word mystery is presented, he always says what that mystery is. And so look, God's mystery, it's not something that's just hidden from us like we don't know. God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. <laughs> the, the New Testament talks about mystery a, a couple of dozen times. Every time it talks about this mystery, it, it's revealing to us what aspect of this mystery it's talking about. All of it relates to Jesus. In the Old Testament, they didn't quite understand how it was going to work out specifically. They would declare God's plan. The Savior was coming. But in the New Testament, we see specifically how it plays out. God comes in the flesh, dies for sinful men, and brings together Jew and Gentile to enjoy God for all of eternity. Some aspect of that is discussed when God refers to this, or when the Bible refers to this as a mystery, but the mystery has been revealed. So there's no, there is no secret that God's withholding from you. Jesus fulfills it all. In fact, when Paul wrote Romans in, in chapter 16, this is what he said, not to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the everlasting God, made known to all the nations for the obedience of faith. Right? There is not this hidden revelation. This mystery has been revealed in Christ for you, bringing us to him to enjoy him for all of eternity. And so Paul is saying this, your foundation, everything that we are, is founded upon in Jesus and so he says to us in verse 4 to 7, let me just create these images in your mind of where we are going in Christ together. And what Paul does is he draws on analogies from culture within the, these, these verses to explain to us what this journey is about. So he says this in verse 7, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. This word for persuasive arguments is a legalistic term, it's something lawyers would Would use. So don't be persuaded by the lawyers, but in verse 5 for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. This word for, for discipline is ranking in a military structure. And so he's saying, where, where you find yourself in Jesus and the stability is your formation in the army. And then in verse six, he goes on and says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And so if you're not in the military, maybe you're more of the, the pilgrim type. And so he's describing it as, you know, the hippy dippy pilgrimage. And then that goes on further in seven, he says, having been firmly rooted in, and built up in him. And so if you're this nation, your lover. He's saying, don't be the tumbleweed, but rather be the tree that goes deep into the ground. Hug the tree, right? So having been rooted and built up in him and established in him, this idea of, of being built up and established is this architectural term. God is, is working in his body to build you up into this beautiful structure in him that is the church. And so he says at the end, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. This word of overflowing is is symbolically represented as, as this river pressing beyond its banks, that God in you, through Christ, working out his plan for eternity, that mystery now being revealed, it's like this well that just springs out of your life. All of these pictures Paul's grasping, he's just using these illustrations for your mind to grab hold of and the beauty of Jesus, however you like to think, whatever artistically attracts you, grab hold of that. If you want to be a tree, be a tree. If you want to be a river, earth, wind, and fire, who cares? Just just think about the significance of Jesus here. And Paul is rooting us in that so that he can get to this place and building his argumentation in verse 8. And so if you think through this text for just a moment. Verse 8, he's going to set two arguments out for us. And and verse uh, verse 9 to verse 15, he's going to talk about one argument. Verse 16 to verse 23, he's then going to present the other argument. And so this is what he says in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men. According to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. I'm going to tell you what Paul's doing here. He's really going to see this as verses play out, but he's really taking every religious system of thinking in this world, and he's positioning it it against Jesus, right? And he's saying to us, choose Jesus. And so he says, listen, these religious thinkings in life will take you captive, And here's where they come from. Men make them up because they don't see the sufficiency of Jesus. And and so they undermine Jesus. And because they don't see the sufficiency of Jesus, they create their own legalistic rules. And here's what happens within that. We start worshiping the elementary principles of the world. These things of the world, we we add as more significant than Christ. And he's saying rather than pursue those things... See the importance of who Jesus is. And so don't allow yourself to be taken captive, but here's the answer, Jesus. And so as Paul presents this argument, he reminds us again in verses 9 to 15 exactly who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And so he repeats a statement for us that he's already stated in chapter 1, verse 15. And so he says this, for in him, talking about Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus literally is God in the flesh. This word for fullness means the sum total of God. God became flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. This is why Jesus said, he who has seen the Father, or he who has seen me, has seen the Father. Jesus became flesh as God dwelling among us. The fullness is is with him. And so it says this in verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. Everything we need as human beings, everything we're created for, everything that life is about, in Jesus there is sufficiency in him because in him you have been made complete. And so it says this, therefore because we're complete in Jesus, he is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 11, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without human hands by the removal of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, let me say what this says, and then we'll talk about how weird this is for a minute. Um, Religiously, we like to do things externally to avail ourselves to God, right? Prove our worth. What it's saying in this verse, in verse 11, is what really needs to take place isn't what happens externally. What really needs to take place in our lives happens in our heart. God needs to redeem our heart. And that's where the wickedness is. Like, you can go through your whole life not, not, not killing, not, not stealing, not committing adultery, not whatever rules you want to make. You can go through your whole life and do that. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew. And so even though you may not have killed, you may have been angry at someone. And, and really, that's, that's where murder comes from. And even though you may not have committed a, a adultery, or maybe you haven't stolen from someone, but you've lusted in your heart, and you've coveted in your heart, and, and that's really what needs addressed. See, we're all sinful human beings, and before a holy God, we need redemption in that. And so the Bible goes to this weird word of using circumcision, and well, that just brings up an interesting point I just want to say to you this morning, when it comes to Jesus, Um Apart from the grace of God and the spirit of God working in our lives, Christians, what you believe is weird. Uh, you, you believe God becomes flesh, God dies for you, gives his life for you, and loves you unconditionally despite sin so that you can enjoy eternity with him forever. That's, that's weird. Like, could you imagine, let's, let's call up friends and just say, hey, get together, let's all get together. I want to talk to you about something that's happened in my life. You guys come over we're going to we're going to sit down around the table I just want to share with you circumcision like right like, let's, let's have some, some talks about some circumcision. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> like, no, no, thank you. That's, that's really not what I want to do with my day today. I've got to watch some grass grow or something, this whole circumcision thing. Let's, let, I'm not going to gather around my kitchen table to have this sort of discussion. But Paul goes on a little further and he says this, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Um, verse 15 is somewhat important. I'm going to scare the snot all of us at the end a little bit, I think. But but I'm, I'm going to just think about this. Um, according to Scripture, this is what it says, verse 15. There is sp- the spiritual realm, God, and and the devil representing the opposite, the the, the kingdom of darkness. And so what Jesus is saying and representing what is pure, what is good, what is holy, he disarms what is darkness, what is ungood, what is hostile. And in verse 14, he describes how this happens. And Paul's using another illustration here we don't quite get in English. But, But during the time of Paul... Paper was expensive, right? You had to be wealthy to own paper. And so whenever any legal document was written, like a receipt, uh, they didn't always do this, but sometimes this would happen because paper was so expensive. They liked to recycle it when there was a debt and it was recorded on a receipt, you know, like your home mortgage or whatever you got to pay. When that bad boy was paid off and you were excited to grab the deed to your home and say, get lost bank, uh, you would take that deed and, and you would present it as having been paid off and they would take the parchment and they would literally just wash it. They would just like, I guess the ink was no good. They would just like dunk it and clean off the the ink so they could recycle that because paper was expensive and it took time to do that. And so when it's talking about Jesus canceling your debt against God, your sin against the Lord, that's what it's saying. Jesus, by his blood, he's dipped it in his blood. He's washed the parchment clean. And so when God looks at you, he sees the purity of who Christ is. Now, apart from the grace of God, saying God came... Became flesh, died for our sins, that we may enjoy eternity with him forever <clears throat> it, it, it 's not an easy pill to just swallow and to think about um, and, and until I think the grace of God begins to work in our lives and reveal this to us but but for us and to our benefit, this is where I find my, found myself years ago as it related to Jesus. Wanting to doubt, wanting to, wanting to throw things at Christ, to disprove him. And here's one of the beautiful ways the grace of God has worked for us as people. That if you really cared enough, there is enough verifiable fact related to Jesus for you to look at him historically with certainty. And to declare this very statement that Paul is making about Christ in Colossians chapter 2. And I'm just going to give you a few of them this morning, and, and hopefully, if, if something's challenged you personally as it relates to Jesus, this helps you find a place to rest in him as sufficient. If you know someone that is challenging Jesus and, and, and questioning where he is, this will help you in, in sharing with them how the sufficiency of Christ is made known to us in our lives, where it really becomes you simply exercising your faith in what Jesus has declared. So some of the questions we skeptically ask about Jesus, but sometimes we don't really take the time to answer. Let me just say, say a few of them for us this morning or ask a few of them. Um, sometimes I've heard this from, from people wanting to deny Jesus. When we say God, he's God become flesh, they they might say to us, well, Jesus was taught to be God over time, meaning meaning the Bible kind of came a little bit later, so Jesus, uh, he he died, and then he was sort of mysticism came into that and romanticized Jesus, and he was declared deity after that. Of which I would say, when you study that historically, it really doesn't hold any water. Um, scripture started to be written. The New Testament started to be written around 45 AD. Jesus crucified around 33 AD. So, within, uh, within just over a decade, the Bible starts to be written. It's written by the individuals that walked with Jesus. So, I ask a question about them and their validity in just a minute. But but to romanticize Jesus and, and to mystically proclaim him something beyond what he was, you really don't have time for those legends to build because Scripture was written. But even before the New Testament was written, when you go back to the Old Testament, you see Jesus declared as deity. There's multiple places to, to point to in Scripture. Uh, one that I love to point to is from the book of Isaiah, because we have copies of the book of Isaiah. Hundreds of years older than Jesus himself in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when you read those portions of Scripture in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, when it talks about the deity of Jesus, this is what it says. Talking about Mary um, prophetically stating about Jesus, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, being translated, literally means. God with us, God in the flesh. When you read the book of John in the beginning, that's how it declares itself, that God was with God, God was God, and, and God became flesh and dwelt among us. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, this, the way this passage translates, if you look every time there's a comma um, until you get to the end, when there are these first few commas, it's saying God relationship to man and God in his identity as deity. And So look at this. For a child will be born to us, okay? This is talking about physically man. A son will be given to us. So at the same time, while this child is born by woman, he's also given to us, meaning he has a claim of deity. And the government will rest on his shoulders. This is talking about physically ruling in the world. And then look what it says about Jesus. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Look, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is called the Father in the Old Testament. Jesus is called mighty God in the Old Testament. And so this idea that Jesus was claimed to be God later doesn't hold any water because we have copies of the book of Isaiah, which claims the deity of Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus existed. And so Jesus, sometimes though it's shared, was was just a, a fable over time. Maybe you've heard of this. People will say, that uh, there are gods around the time of Jesus, or simply a little before Jesus, of which the story of Jesus was fabricated from, and there was their gods named Mithras and Horus and, and a few others, and they'll say, "Well, really, what happened in this area of Jerusalem? They took the stories of these other gods in the area, and they sort of made this story of Jesus." And so, when you read the story of these other gods, you can see how they would formulate the story of Jesus. And and that really became popular in the book written by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Um, And and it was started, that idea was started uh, not first century, not second century, not third century, fourth century. Um, It actually came in the 19th century by German philosophers. They started to propose this idea, having studied uh, different gods uh, in the Roman Empire and said that when it related to Jesus, they formulated these ideas of Christ about these other gods. Uh, well, there's, there's a couple of problems with that. The first is, um, if that were true and it was so obvious, you would expect some point in the first, I don't know, 10 centuries for someone else to say it, right? But no one else makes that claim. Uh, because it, it didn't hold any water, and no one, no one would have thought that, that it held any water within those first few centuries, And which brings me to the second problem. When you read German claims, when you read Da Vinci Code claims that these stories about Jesus were stolen from these other gods, and you actually read the stories about these other gods, you see nothing that symbolically represents Jesus in any way. And, and, and to take these stories and say that they developed the story of Jesus off that, you have to be on some sort of like, You know, (laughs) know, it's so far out beyond. The only thing, and of all these stories, I've read them because I was a skeptic myself. The only thing in these stories that remotely comes close to identifying something related to Jesus is the god Mithras, Mithras. And and he was claimed to have been born on December 25th, which, by the way, isn't Jesus' real birthday to begin with. It's just the day that the church has selected in order to honor Jesus. I think it was because pagan gods were honored on this day. Christianity gave such a rise that they wanted to eliminate these pagan gods and wanted to honor Jesus and picked a day on the calendar year to celebrate the birth of Christ, which we call December 25th. Which, by the way, historically, around the world, the Christian church, not every Christian church around the world celebrates December 25th as Jesus' birthday. Some of them celebrate it, believe it or not, in January. And, and, and so um, this this idea of these gods even coming close to Jesus, it, it holds no water. And it's just when, when you hear someone question that, you, you just know they've never even researched it. They've only, they've only really just questioned it. And because when you study it, when you dive into it, it doesn't hold any water. And the last I just want to say is this. Um, really, all that we believe hinges upon whether or not Jesus was rec- resurrected from the grave. Um, he was in this tomb for three days. Did, did Jesus really resurrect from the grave? Or did the disciples just make this up? <clears throat> when you read the New Testament, you read the book of Luke, ch- chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, Luke was s- sent to investigate Christianity. He was paid for by, it's believed, Theophilus paid Luke to journey around the world and and document the Gospels, document the book of Acts and what was happening in Christianity. It's believed Theophilus was this wealthy individual. Luke was a godly doctor. And so knowing he would pay pay very close attention to detail, uh, he sent Luke out to write the story of Jesus. and, and, And Luke traveled with Paul. And so he gets this this gospel story doing ministry with Paul. But when Luke starts the gospel of Luke, which was the very first writing he's, he, he's given to, he says this, uh, he, he writes the accounts of Jesus from eyewitnesses. Okay. When Paul writes first Corinthians 15, and, and he, he shares the gospel and then he goes on this listing of if individuals Jesus appeared to av- after his resurrection. And he even says at one point Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. The point of that is this, in the first century, Christianity spread so rapidly, it's unbelievable. But when the writers are writing these documents, what they're saying is, if you don't believe me, people are still walking, having seen the resurrected Jesus. And when Paul says, listen, he appeared to 500 people at one time, what Paul is saying is, um, you know, it, it might be possible for one person to just go a little crazy and say, you know, I saw Jesus. It might be possible for like 10 people to say, we all saw Jesus. But 500 people gathered together at one time, trying to come up with some sort of uh, make-believe story that they saw Jesus becomes a bit ridiculous, especially when you consider the expense these individuals are going to pay because of their faith in Christ. When you look at the disciples, the early disciples died. Jesus' 11, apart from Judas, who was the 12th, Jesus' 11 disciples died thousands of miles apart from one another. Bartholomew is is, is filleted alive in Armenia. Andrew is crucified in Greece. Uh, Matthew loses his life in Ethiopia, gives up his life for Christ in Ethiopia. Paul is beheaded in Rome. These individuals spreading all over the globe, thousands of miles apart, get, get no accommodations for this and continue to give their lives for Christ. Now I will say, when it comes to religious ideology, we know We know there are plenty of people who will give up their lives for some ideology related to some God. People just get emphatically nuts. We've seen that in American history. We see that across the globe in the last 10 years, right? The disciples didn't give up their lives or kill other people giving up their lives for this ideology. You remember when it relates to their lives, when you read the gospel about the disciples... If you're going to talk about this religious belief that you want to tout yourself in, one of the things you're certainly going to do when you write this book, this holy book, is you're going to make yourself look a little bit good in it. I mean, my goodness, when you read the Gospels, what you see about these disciples is the only one that continues to get the identity of Jesus right is the demons. It's like, come on, guys, you're hanging out with Jesus for three years here. You guys continue to get it wrong moment after moment. And it's the demons that come before Jesus that pronounce the goodness of who Christ is. Even to the point when Jesus is crucified, the disciples are the ones that are cowards running away. Now, if you're going to make up a faith and write something about it, you probably, and going to be a leader for this faith, want to make yourself look a little bit good. These disciples didn't do it, nor did they give up their lives for a religious ideology. The reason disciples gave their lives for Christ was a fact, and the fact was something they could not deny. Because as you read the end of the Gospels, what you see in the lives of these disciples is they are cowards running away and something happens within them where everything changes in a moment. And what is it? It's the resurrection of Christ. They couldn't deny it. A dead man was walking. Jesus is who he said he was. I can imagine the disciples, when they heard Jesus say to the religious leaders, destroy this temple in three days, I will build it again. When Jesus said that, they're like, what is this man talking about? Like, he, that is it's crazy. How is he going to build it three days later after he dies? And finally they realize, wait a minute, Jesus is dead, and now Jesus is alive. On the day he died, he ripped the temple veil in two. An earthquake happened. It ripped the temple veil, symbolizing to the world no longer did the, the presence of God dwell in the temple, but the New Testament says this the presence of God dwells in his people. People will die for religious ideology. That's not why the disciples gave up their lives. That's not why the first century church endured such hardship and, and, and gave up their life for Christ. It was a fact. The fact that Luke says, test the eyewitnesses. The fact that Paul says, listen, there was 500 people at one time that saw this. When you read beyond just the disciples, you see it continue in in church history. Uh, Church history is so well documented for Christianity, it's unbelievable. Uh, A parchment, a a pounded out piece of, of weeds that turns into grass lasting thousands of years is unbelievable, but to think we have over 5,000 Greek texts of the New Testament is just, it's just ridiculous to me to even think that much exists as if God's saying, listen, there's no way parchment should exist this long, but I'm saying to you, this is how you know the New Testament is valid because here it is, thousands of Greek texts for you to examine your faith to know it holds water. Now, now when you examine religions in general and you compare that to scripture, to the Bible, I mean, it is, it is, it is unfathomable to even think Think that religions would hold water in comparison to Christianity. I don't want to say it to undermine religions, but if you're coming towards, towards faith intellectually, like you understand that God gave you your mind to under, understand who He is truthfully. I mean, there are major religions in the world that when you say, on what basis have you established their faith, and they have no way to trace back where their ancient creeds even come from, but they just say, you just simply do it because. But Christianity thousands of Greek texts, and not only that, early church fathers dating as, as early as, as 500 A.D. are on the scene writing about faith in Christ. Clement of Rome, Ignatius, uh, Irenaeus, Polycarp, Eusebius, who documented tons of church history, Tertullian, Ambrose, Augustine. I mean, the list goes on and on uh, uh, of early church history, Hippolytus, Origen, even in Christianity today, like you see people, skeptics who approach it using their minds, like Lee Strobel, who I shared in the beginning, Chuck Holston, who I just talked about, Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell just wrote some great books called, I think they're called the Coffee House Books or something, but they're three little books under 100 pages on who is Jesus and how do you know the Bible is valid. Great reads. Even even if you go back further in American church history, Simon Greenleaf, the man who started Harvard Law School, he he was known, he was a Jew who was known to be against Christianity and would make fun of uh, law students who came to Harvard Law School who believed in Jesus. And and one year, a freshman comes in and says, listen, as a lawyer, the thing that you teach us in Harvard Law School is to examine the evidence. And I just want to ask, as you mock my faith, have you ever really examined the faith of Christianity? And wanting to be a man of his word saying, examine the evidence, Simon Greenleaf goes back and examines Christianity, becomes a believer and writes a book about it. The man who starts Harvard Law School. This is where Paul is saying, the significance of what Jesus has done for us is important for us to understand. And so then he gets to this, look, verse eight, he says, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't undermine the beauty of who Christ is. And so he's going to go on from verse 16. He's going to talk about three religious ways of thinking that undermine who Christ is. And in verse 16, 17, I'm going to tell you what it is. Verse 16, 17, legalism. Verse 18, 19, mysticism. Verses 20 to 23, asceticism. I'll, I'll tell you what those are in just a moment. But Warren Weir's becoming to this text, this section says this. Any time a person adds religion, he is also judging Jesus Christ. He is saying that Christ did not finish the work of salvation on the cross and that he must add something to it. He is also saying that Jesus Christ is not sufficient for all the spiritual needs of the Christian. Verse 16 and 17. If, if you want to know when Paul's saying this is how we get deceived, verse 16 17, now he's going to explain it. therefore, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. So he's saying, listen, men will establish these religious ways of thinking and saying, do this, do this, do this, and you earn your favor for God and God finds you acceptable. Look, it all belongs to Jesus. The substance is in Jesus. Verse 18, talking about mysticism. These are acknowledging spirits. He says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Taking his stand on visions, he has inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows together in him. So what he's saying is this, like... um, People are coming along and they're saying he's having these spiritual feelings and, and it's denying what Scripture's already declared. And so Paul's saying, you want to know where that really comes from? It's not of God. Look, when it comes to you and your feeling and, and the word of God, God gave his word for a reason, and that's for us to examine where we are to understand if we're really walking in truth. And, and the argument goes like this. Um, Let no one keep defrauding you uh, of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. So they would have said this. You know, Jesus is good, and you can include Jesus in our religious thinking, but Jesus isn't all, right? I mean, he's just a part, or, or maybe a piece, or he's one of many roads that you can take. And then he goes on further beyond mysticism, which is this idea of angelic worship. So legalism is a system of rules. Mysticism is this type of angelic worship. In verse 20, he says this, talking about asceticism. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you not submit to your, yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance to the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and self-treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so what he's saying is like, these guys take, asceticism is like taking legalism to the next step. Asceticism is like abusing yourself because you you don't find yourself worthy. And so by torturing yourself to some degree in some way, then God will find you acceptable. And so these religious thinkings are all these systems of trying to avail yourself to God so that God loves you. So that God embraces you the truth of who Jesus is is there's nothing you've done to make God love you less. And there's nothing you will do to make God love you, love you more. God loves you. So much so he sacrificed his life for you sufficiently so that you could be what Paul describes in verses four to seven. Whether you want to be the hippie on the pilgrimage who's hugging the trees next to the river that's overflowing or the military guy, or whatever, the architect that builds, whatever. The point is that you can just sit in the joy of Jesus and rest in the joy of Jesus. Now, when it comes to these ways of religious thinking, I think they're present in our culture today, but let me just share this. I don't think our battle is as much, and it is, but let me, let me just share this. I don't think our battle is as much legalism, mysticism, and asceticism I think those interfere into our lives religiously. But I think we're even a step below that now culturally. Like If these were the 1950s, I would probably talk more about legalism. But here's where I think our battle starts before we even get to legalism. I I think our battle is really with moralism. And the reason is, is, is because we haven't been taught to think theologically. And we have facts to establish everything in life. But when it comes to faith... We don't know how to think through things theologically. And so we use the word for faith like it's sort of this Russian roulette guessing game. And and the way that we use this game is we use our own system, value system of moralism apart from God to determine if a religion is valid, right? And so the thinking will go like this. Moralism makes religion correct. And since we can find a, a hint of moralism in every religion, then they are all right, right? And if we believe moralism is the way we say things like, if it seems moral, it must be true, right? If it's good, it must be true. And that's the way we think moralistically as it relates to to, to religion. And so what we don't realize is in that statement, although we're saying moralism is a good thing and I I definitely want us to live holy, good lives, uh, we use moralism to gauge what is true and what isn't true. And there is profound danger in that. And let me just give you an example, okay? I heard this in the news this week. I thought this would fit perfectly for us. And, and I'm gonna talk bad about something for a second, but just hear me out, okay? Because if we can't think through this, we've got some serious issues to address in our life. And this is why I wanna bring this up. There is a, an individual running for office right now. He is a US Marine Sergeant named Steve Hill. I don't know what you were thinking I was gonna say there. But he is a, he's a Sergeant named S- uh, Steve Hill. And he is, he is the satanic temple's first political candidate who has openly acknowledged affiliation with this temple and he's running as democrat uh, for the senate in california if you're part of d21 right go california and so I'm listening to this on NPR radio this week, and, and so to make his, even though it starts off he's satanic, then they give this appeal in the end, so that you're not, as af- you're not afraid of the fact that he's offering uh, up his services as a uh, governmental leader, representing the satanic temple. He says this, don't worry, our mission statement at the satanic temple is this, I looked it up online, I got the quote directly. It's in, to encourage the benevolence and empathy among all people. And since moralism determines what's true, that doesn't sound bad, right? I mean, it's the, to, to to encourage the benevolence and empathy among all people. That's pretty good, yeah. You know, so he's he's got validity there. And so we we uh, present that and, and we allow that because it's okay. When we make moralism the point, here comes the problem. This is where it starts. When you say, you know, as long as it's good, it doesn't really matter what you're worshiping. As long as it's good, this is what we've already done. We've said moralism is of greater value than the God who defines the moralism, right? It doesn't matter. As long as what you do is good, moralism, and then the God below that really serves moralism, right? But we know the point of anything good in this life is determined by the one who created it all. And so we've already got the system in reverse by saying, you know, moralism and then the, it doesn't matter what God, as long as there's moralism, right? And so it's already in reverse by acknowledging we're okay with moralism. But, but here's where the, the thing gets scary, and this is maybe where I might concern you a little bit in thinking through this. If moralism, if we live under the thought of moralism, this is the way we tend to think if we believe in spiritual forces in this world. We tend to think that what the spiritual forces are after, what Satan's really after, is the bad guys, Right? Those are the ones that belong to him. It's the bad guys. It's, it's, it's the murderers, and it's the prostitutes, and it's the, the drug dealers. You know, Satan's after the bad guys, right? The question I just ask is, um, if you believe that what he's really after is the bad guys, why would Satan go after what he already owns? If you get into a gunfight, the first person you're going to attack isn't the unarmed man. The thing you want to bring down is the one that holds it all together. Right? Satan isn't after what he already owns. When spiritual forces are real, Satan isn't going to attack what belongs to him. In Christianity, the weapon is Jesus. And honestly, I mean this, and I want to encourage, you know, care for one another in the world and love for one another in this world, but, but I honestly believe this. Moralism is Satan's facade to detract you from the truth of Jesus. And that's Paul's argument. He doesn't use moralism here, but he points to Christ. and So let me, let, me, let me close with this illustration. First two chapters of Colossians cannot emphasize the significance of Jesus enough. The way Jesus loves you, the way Jesus has given his life for you, the way Jesus has created all things, the way Jesus is God come in the flesh, we cannot emphasize that enough. I heard a story of a, of a man. Uh, his name was Hernando Cortez. In the 1500s, I think it was 1519, he, he went to the Yucatan Peninsula, which was central Mexico, and he brought just over 500 men, 10 ships, into that area to, to fight the Aztecs. The Aztecs were known to have this unbelievable treasure. And people had, people groups had come against them to fight them, and to no avail, no one was victorious. And this empire is estimated to be as high as 15 million people at this point. And he comes into this area, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but, but he comes into this area in 1519, 10 ships, a little over 500 men, and these men defeat an, a, a people group of over 15 million and seize this prize or seize this treasure. No one had been victorious to this point. These individuals come in and are victorious. Let me just share how. When they got off the ship, Hernando Cortez ordered some of his men to go back to the boats and burn the ships. That when the army looked behind them, there was nowhere else to go. If there are spiritual forces at work in this world, What they want to present to you is the façade of ships. Our heart holds on to ships, not wanting to completely embrace the beauty of who Christ is. Paul in this passage encourages you of anyone, believer in Christ, hold to Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah.